John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 673.LK1218, certificate number 48481, Jobbers Canyon. You and, uh, you and Mindy eat well. We talk about your, your food... Uh, your food life on this show a lot, don't food we? Food life? Yeah, you you and Mindy live in the food life. We're very busy, so we, we have a lot of takeout life lately. Is that right? A lot of taco life, but she does like to cook, so. Do you, uh, do you put frozen meals in your refrigerator by any chance? Only for our vegetarian kid who will usually not eat what we are eating. But you don't there when but you go to the store, you don't go down the frozen aisle and, and put a couple of Stouffer's lasagnas in there? No, um, I come from a family that would occasionally do that with Costco lasagna. We always thought that was fun when we were kids to put it in those little budget you, you, budget gourmet trays. Do you remember these? You have to slit the hole, you put it in the microwave, and you, you know, in a, in a hot pocket after school. Budget gourmet if if mom or dad are out. But honestly, uh, except for a few Trader Joe's select items that we know that the kid will not complain about, because it's bad to be a vegetarian and a picky eater. There's really not a lot of options if you're vegetarian, but also you don't like mushrooms, half the grains, much soy, hard to feed. Do you, do you eat a lot of frozen food? Uh, I do. Is it, are you, uh, do you mean popsicles? Do I, you, how many Otter Pops have you had today? I have had zero Otter Pops, but there are some vegetarian, uh, not vegetarian, but you know, like natural fruit mm. style otter pups uh, upstairs. We have some of those, the juice ones where you feel like a better parent. But yeah, that's exactly right. But I do eat uh, frozen foods and I got into the habit of um, of doing it by going to Trader Joe's, America's most beloved frozen food purveyor. Once you know which ones are good... You, you can eat right at Trader Joe's. I'll yeah. So, that. so I'm as a as a bachelor who does not sit down at the table every night with my family and uh, to a lovingly home cooked meal. A patriarchal society where someone has just cooked you. I honestly feel guilty because Mindy will if if Mindy's making dinner, she will make like four things. Yeah. Five things, and I'll be like, what? Wait, why do we have cauliflower? But also, you made some, you pickled some kind of cucumber. <laughs> but, and what's this? This is couscous. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like five dinners. It's, no, I it's just bad. It's, I, it's bad. I throw some old, old uh, I like some takeout rice into a bowl, and then I put over the top of it a Trader Joe's uh, like tikka masala in a bag. And is that your go-to Trader Joe's? Thing? And I don't even eat in front of the television because I don't even have a TV. So I just sit and stare out the window, eating my no, my you sad look at little. Your phone. No, no, no. I sit in the bath. I actually eat most of my meals in the bath. Do you remember when Trader Joe's had like the the racist alter egos? Like, oh, sure. Like, like if you Trader's got, if Jose. If you got the Italian food, it would be Trader uh, Gianni, and they would have Trader Chang's for their- That was Chinese not that entries. long ago. It was weirdly recently. <laughs> like three years ago. Maybe even more recently. Um, but uh, but I do eat, and, and the problem is I'm, I'm enough of a hippie or a modern eater that I'm very aware that probably any Purdue chicken is one-third antibiotics- 
uh, yeah, that's the. I mean, that's the most that's the most it can be because the FDA looks out for us. Yeah, yeah. Any more and, than one third, and you can't you know, get a two thirds antibiotic. You have to sell it overseas. But you know, all all meat processing is probably bad. There's oh, there's almost no version of it unless the farmer actually comes to your house and kills the cow on your on your front steps after kneeling with it in prayer. Uh, every other version of it is going to be is going to be a harsh toke. I would pay extra for that. But uh, and you will you will you'll pay extra if you if you ask for all that service. It's twice as expensive for them to to kill and process the cow right on your front. I mean, we don't porch. do this with meat, although we probably should because meat is murder. But uh, you know, we do get a, a box of organic groceries yep. left on our porch every week, and it just reminds me that I should feel guilty about the other ones. The you know, if I don't get a rutabaga from F- Full Moon Farms or whatever. Oh, think about what that that normal rutabaga goes through. Oh man. The torture. And think about what it's done to the soil, probably. Oh, all think, that rutabaga off-gassing. Water that's not going to thirsty children because it's going to the Central Valley to give me a rutabaga. Yeah, and, and, and what the water is like after it passes through the rutabaga. Exactly. You can't clean that water, no matter how you try. No, your kids are just going to, they have rutabaga DNA in them now. But, you know, America and American food, a bit, People in Europe and uh, and other nations of the world drinking milk out of a box. They sneer at us. They do. They feel like we are too lackadaisical in the way we process our food. Although they're wrong, they're also getting terrible food. They just are better. Their companies are better at pretending. I was at dinner with my in laws the other night, and they had just come back from Europe. And I think my Mindy's dad had made pancakes, so we were having pancakes for dinner. Nothing better. And I said, oh, is, is there butter? And he was like, yeah, because they're kind of a margarine family. Oh. Is there butter? Yes, he hands me the butter. And I was like, oh, good. And he's like, but it's not, it's not Danish butter or Dutch butter. Whoa, and I Dutch was like, butter. I was like, are those, are those good? And he's like, oh, it's, it's, it's oh, night and day. That stuff is so good. You'll never go back. That's Danish have. butter. So maybe they are better over there. What kind of butter was it? I don't know. Some, it was Kroger butter. Yeah. It was store brand butter. Local butter. But I, again, I come from a parquet childhood. Yeah, but aren't we all Tillamook out here all the time? Don't you get Tillamook? I get Tillamook cheeses. But you don't get Tillamook And butter. ice cream. They make butter? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Come on. I've been getting... Get, get your Oregon on. <laughs> that's going to be better than... That's going to be better than... That's the Denmark of, of, uh, of America. Oregon is 100% the Denmark of America. It's true. Uh, although, probably you could put five Denmarks in Oregon and... But, you know, Denmark's full of hicks, too, just like Oregon is. Hicks and sure. hippies. Sure. And just because Legoland's nice, it doesn't mean there's not Trump stickers, you know, 20 miles out of town. Who's the who's the Danish Trump? Uh, uh, Hans, yeah. uh, Hans, um... Jürgen Jürgensen. Jürgensen. In the United States, I, uh, at one maybe more than anything, I wish I had never red pilled myself on processed food (laughs) because if I could just be someone who, who thought processed food was amazing and didn't have to sit and, and torture myself with my ivory tower guilt over every single barbecue thing from, from, uh, ConAgra. The body's so simple. It yeah. just wants sugar and salt and fat. But I, and, if, and if they've invented new chemicals that make that sugar and salt and fat taste even more delectable. It's maybe one of the big arguments against being a liberal is the amount of time I spend walking around a supermarket you know. going, oh, I can't eat that. Oh, God, I can't buy that. I wish I didn't know the truth about fast food. But then the, the truth is, if you don't want to eat this garbage, then you have to spend an hour and a half a day preparing your food. And another hour and a half, probably. Or growing it yourself. Or growing it yourself. Go out and the then you and have to shop and you have to eat better and exercise. And while you're at it. Drink some water, God, John. Why not be honest with people in business? And How many glasses of water have you had today? I bet not enough. Uh, let me think. Does coffee count as water? <laughs> coffee. Is coffee a vegetable? <laughs> I think Is I've, butter a carb? I think I've had one glass of water today. It's not enough. Coffee's a diuretic. Yeah. If you drink a glass of co- a cup of coffee, you got to have three glasses of water probably. Oh, no. I, I, I already am in the bathroom 60 times a day. That's the coffee. Because I'm four, four, 53. I may have already told this story, but I, I remember red-pilling my kids about uh, Big Ag. We, we were 
Boo. It wasn't me. Mindy took Dylan up to the Monroe County Fair and he was watching the the cows get milked and the hens get egged. Oh, and then they looked at the pigs and he was like, where does the bacon come out? And he thought that just like getting milk out of a cow and eggs out of a chicken, the bacon that the farmer could come down. and every morning peel off some bacon from a happy pig. And we had to tell Dylan the sad Charlotte's Web truth. But he sure seems to eat <laughs> as much bacon as he can. Even my vegetarian kid is like, wait, I can't eat bacon. I know. Bacon's pretty good. I just ask Reddit. I really, you know, the supermarkets are good at at making uh tasty things. The the companies, the big cumps, as all, we say. All three of them. <laughs> and, uh, big big cump. So here here are the top uh food consumer products companies in the Fortune 500. I thought you were going to say the top food consumers. Here are the in top America, food consumers in this in room. Order. Me, <laughs> followed by you. Yeah, silver medal. Uh, the number one is PepsiCo. PepsiCo makes more food than any other. That's the largest by revenue of all the food consumer product companies. Is that because of other, um, like, uh, is that because of fast food stuff? Do they did, did they spin off all their Pizza Huts and KFCs? Or like, what is that? Or, or do they own other brands of of meats and fruits and vegetables? Like if I walk down the supermarket aisle and I buy Nabisco, is that secretly Pepsi Nabisco? Pepsi Pepperidge Farms? Uh, Pepsi, Pepsi Del Monte? Pepsi makes a, a, a lot of pop. Well, I've heard. They make Gatorade, but they also own Doritos, Cheetos. Right. Uh, they own the Quaker Food Company, Ruffles, um, and so they make health food. They and Tostitos, all, all, Fritos, the, all of the Edos, and um, they also sell the Starbucks family of products in grocery stores. Pepsi, so, by the way, no longer owns KFC and Pizza Hut. They spun that off in I don't know the nineties. Um, but next on the list is Kraft. These are these these are American uh, processed food companies. But I'm sure that uh, people listening internationally also are able to buy products made by Pepsi. When and we Kraft. say Kraft, you he- when we say Pepsi and Kraft, you hear Fanta and Lavash Curie, and that's fine. <laughs> Third is General Mills, which I always assumed was the largest American food products company. Because wh- who can outrank a general? That's right. Nobody. Well, and they used to make everything, but I think now if Pepsi can own Doritos, like, is there no God? That's, I think that should be a kind of a government antitrust problem. Doritos make you thirsty for more Pepsi. Oh. This is a, this is a vertical, vertical that, that they should get out of, honestly. The government needs to break up big chip. Big chip. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to, to make soda and the, the soda that quenches the chip thirst and the chip that's, that inspires the the Pepsi craving. Why should you not? This is America, God does co- or darn it, does, as we say. Does Coke make, <laughs> does Coke own food brands? Uh, Surely they do. It appears maybe not. I mean, other lots of other beverages. Oh, well, that's why they're not, that's why they're not that big. That's why they're not that big. They own, you know, Minute Maid and Schweppes. They own every kind of drink. But if you have to chew, Coke's not for you. That's what they say in Atlanta. Whoa, they don't. <laughs> if you uh, if you go down the list, uh, one of the biggest food companies in the United States is Landa Lakes, who make butter yeah. and spreads, but they also make like what appear to be government cheese, and they make uh, like packaged jam and pudding. Like, how is a company that's just making sour cream pudding and cheese and sauce one of the largest companies in america you might ask because because john roderick has eaten cheese and sauce everybody all the time once cheese and sauce is why it's not as good as dutch pudding cups but it's i'm sure it's fun. delicious dutch pudding cups but if you uh you don't have to go much further down the list before you arrive at conagra products are you familiar with the ConAgra family of of uh, food brands? Uh, yeah, but do you not see it on foods because they own the brand you see on the foods? Well, you want to um, you want to think that that ConAgra is uh, because it's such a large company. It sounds like they're the they're the evil company in like a Michael uh, Clayton type of movie. 
you know, that they, right. they get brought down by a by an enterprising reporter or whistleblower. Yeah, and that's not entirely wrong. Um, Conagra is, in fact, evil. They well, what's unless they sponsor this particular venture, in which case, what's mm, funny is brownies. that they they are a company that owns a lot of brands, uh, but they didn't start out that way. It it was a thing that happened um, that happened after. Uh, after many decades of, uh, kind of doing a good job of making flour and a bad job, Ken, of making business right now, when I think of like a, like a, a food conglomerate, I think of these companies like general mills that own a bunch of brands that you, that you think of as major food brands, yeah. right? Um, here are some of the brands that comprise the ConAgra family of foods. People always say family, like what a, what a heartwarming idea oh. it is that we make both pudding and, uh, uh, crack boxes of crackers. It's a family. It's a family affair. Yeah. The Conagras came over to this country on the Mayflower. Think about this family. Okay. Chef Boyardee. He could be the patriarch of the family. Chef Boyardee makes delicious canned raviolis. They are not delicious, but go ahead. Um, Hebrew national hot dogs. Hot dogs. Bertoli which is a Italian sort of pasta based food company, right? Bertoli. What do they make? Yeah. It was an olive oil brand, but now it's pastas and sauces and uh, frozen dinners, all the rest. So, you know, from, from, uh, from Hebrew national chef Boyardee and Bertoli, we see that the ConAgra family has a lot of ethnic, uh, it's like a melting pot. An American melting pot. It's a real American success story. Uh, here, there's a, there's Orville Redenbacher, famous American speaking of ethnic, German. Speaking of ethnic food, Orville Redenbacher. Uh-huh. Uh, Pam, the spray on. Does that count as food? Uh, oil that can, you put on your. Can, canola oil in aerosolized yeah, form? I think, I think it's food. You could, if you were starving in the desert <laughs> and all you had was a can of Pam. Oh man. And you just sprayed Pam in your mouth. Could, how long could you live? Do you think? How much, how big of a thing is it? Do I have like a... It's a full can of Pam. A full can of home style There can't Pam. be that many calories in Pam. I mean, even if that thing was full of canola oil, which mm-hmm. I, it's not. You're going to have digestive problems pretty fast. You might lose more water than you gain in nutrition. And, That's probably what And then when you have to fry something, it'll stick to the pan because you, <laughs> you, you huh? just squirted all your Pam into your mouth. No, no, no. In this story... We have nonstick pans. Do you know what the, do you know what PAM stands for? Uh, what? It's the inventor's name. It's, it stands for product of Arthur Meyerhoff. Oh, how smart. What an ego. <laughs> it's the product. He's the only made one thing. Yeah, I guess, I guess you Arthur know, Meyerhoff. I guess that's a guy who knew like, this is my life's work. I will never invent anything better than canola oil, oil in a spray bottle. Uh, another one of the, the, the big brands, Slim Jim. Oh. Slim Jim. Step into a Slim Jim. <laughs> Which is a kind of. It's, it's beef jerky yeah. in, in a, some kind of casing. Yeah, it's a beef jerky. It's an oilier beef jerky. If you're ever eating beef jerky and think, I wish this were kind of oily. Yeah. I, I wish this was for you. super greasy. Uh, it wasn't a couple of years ago. This is a side note. There was a explosion at the Slim Jim plant. <gasps> it, uh, the Slim Jim plant blew is that, up. Is that how Randy Savage died? I, I might have been. Uh, that, that doesn't really figure into the story, but, but, uh, when I was reading about this and saw that the Slim Jim plant had exploded, I really, I don't know. I celebrated its entire catalog. So as you can see, ConAgra is kind of a, uh, a, a clearinghouse of a lot of different sort of unrelated foodstuffs. Probably um, acquired in a series of acquisitions. They make, uh, they make healthy choice lines of food. Okay. Uh, ready whip, uh, fake, like whipped cream is ready whip just whipped cream that's been treated so they can it's shelf stable or is it actually like cool whip in that it has no dairy and it's it's based on uh palm oil and some kind of i think ready whip is actually a dairy whipped cream product it just comes out of a cool it just comes out of a cool uh, nitrous oxide thing so you can do whippets yeah there are a lot of different ready whips some of them are uh fat free oh yeah they have coconut and almond they do but I do believe that Ready Whip is made of, uh, well. Yeah, it's dairy. Is it? It's yeah. a, it's do you think we're making people hungry for Ready Whip, just talking about it at length? If you're living, if you're living in the bombed out ruins of America and you haven't seen a can of Ready Whip in months, 
I, I apologize. It's, it's funny because it's Re- Ready Whip was in, was originally invented as a vegetable oil substitute for cream. So they must have, um, oh yes. But then they, then after World War II, they, they introduced real cream into the vibe. I know all about Ready Whip because they, it's pressurized with nitrous oxide. So to I spent you, a lot of time integrating. You, it's drug paraphernalia yeah. with, with a, a little, uh, just a cream finish, a little dairy on yeah. top. Uh, and let, let's see, there are some other things, egg beaters, the, the fake, yeah, the fake eggs, eggs uh, and Udi's gluten-free, which you, you always want to think is like a, Udi's. it's a brand of, of pasta and other products that I have no gluten. I don't go in that gluten-free aisle. And it makes you feel like, oh, this is made by some like Israeli grandmother who, who doesn't want you to eat any gluten, but in fact, it's made by ConAgra. Well, maybe there originally was an Udi. There was originally a Chef Boyardee. Sure. There was an, originally a Pam. Apparently. Imagine if you like, if you're just like, um, you're on a plane or something and you see Chef Boyardee there. Like he's a real hey, guy. Uh, he's got the hat. Yeah. The hat does, says Chef Boyardee. Those, those pink little cheeks and that tiny little dolly mustache. That uh, I mean, he died in 1985, so it would be difficult to see him on a plane today. If you do, it's a ghost. Signore uh, Boyardee? Boyardee. It was what? originally just oh. Ettore Boyardee, oh, he... but it got Americanized. Yeah, and like spelled with a weird, yeah. weird like here's how you spell yeah, it. They don't spelling. have a, they don't have a double e in uh, <laughs> in Italia. Well, Conagra has like most American foodstuffs companies uh, a long history, and it is uh, it, uh, today's show is going to take us to America's heartland. Yes, no less a place than Omaha, Nebraska. Have you been to Omaha? State I've never been to. We were, uh, I think, oh, right. on the addenda, we were recently saying we need a road trip to North Dakota and Nebraska, despite right. the fact that they do not border each other. No, but they're close. They're separated only by that blowing and sucking state of South Dakota. That will get rid of two of the eight states I haven't been to. That would knock out a quarter of my of my problem. Well, Nebraska is kind of a fascinating state. I'm a big Nebraska booster. I enjoy the Bruce Springsteen record of the name. Mm-hmm. That's about it. The and Bruce Dern movie of the name. Oh, well, people, it's a hard watch. People named Bruce have done good work with uh, with that state. Eight out of ten men in Nebraska are named Bruce. It's like Australia. It's like a little little known fact. Huh. That's right. All the women in in Australia are named Sheila. All the men in Nebraska are named Bruce. Did you know that Australian women are not in fact named Sheila? That it's just a slang term there. What? For women? You're kidding me. That would be like saying all American women are named Sweetie or something. Are all women in England? Actual birds? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They uh, they have light, hollow bones and can therefore flutter from uh, from thatched roof to vicarage. You can tell from listening to this show that Ken and I both have COVID and have brain fog. <laughs> this is the this is the show. From this is now how on. you diagnose long COVID: is you make <laughs> someone podcast for an hour and you see just what kind of organ damage they have. It it, it makes sense that uh, that Nebraska is. Uh, the breadbasket of America because of because it the, rhymes it, it it rhymes Nebraska Ned Baska. But when the uh, when the you know westward westward migration arrived there on the Great Plains, and um, uh, the thing about the westward the thing about migrating people everywhere is that a certain percentage of them is going to get tired every day. You guys go on right, and so the reason there are towns everywhere is that. Each town represents the proportion, the number of people that got tired that day and yeah. said, I'm not going anymore. Lewis and Clark and Zimmerman. And then Zimmerman's like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to rest up here. <laughs> these, mountains, so, these mountains are pretty rocky. I don't know what you guys are going to call them. but You know, Los Angeles is really big, which is testament to how many people kept going. But Denver, <laughs> you know, you always know the Austin. name of the lazy guy who stayed behind. <laughs> oh, hey, Mister Dubuque, I'm just gonna stay here in Iowa. You, the Dubuques will be, I'll be camping right here. It seems nice. The, the, the maybe the Paiute are friendly. But we've talked a lot about um, about the Mormon Trail and the Oregon Trail, the westward migrations of peoples across the plains, and a lot of those trails went through Nebraska. And, um, and kind of all joined up with one another in central Nebraska along the Great Platte River Road, the Oregon Trail, the Mormon Trail, all the trails. All the, all the good trails. They all connected there and, um, 
and then dispersed on the other side. You know, they get to Wyoming and these people go that way. These people go that way. And some people were like, eh, that was a long walk. This looks pretty good. Yeah. Let's stay here, here at, in, in, uh, what Laramie. Why would anybody to all of our Laramie listeners? I love it there, but you know, to both of our Wyoming listeners, you're fully two thirds of the population. You have some, you, you have a legitimate questions for your ancestors. And Why? La- and land acknowledgement, all, oh, the, yeah, all sure. the places they were staying, uh, you know, they didn't really, uh, they weren't the first people there. No, that's right. But they, and they, even they the were, first people there weren't the first people there until they got to the first people there. They were Sven and, uh, uh, uh Sven Patrick Sven. come lately's. <laughs> but because of Nebraska's location and because of its like centrality to the, to the, um, westward migration, maybe not coincidentally, it is where the Union Pacific Railroad, um, like that's, that's the route that they picked for the transcontinental railroad in the 1860s when, when, uh, Lincoln kind of authorized the, not kind of authorized the construction of, uh, of the, um, the railroad across the States. They took it across Nebraska. Do you think Lincoln was like, it should go through Lincoln, Nebraska? That's the, that's the bitchingest state capital. It was a, it was like a Kansas, Nebraska act thing. He was Mm -hmm. like, well, Kansas is going to get, uh, hovercrafts so nebraska is gonna have to get the train before people write to me i know that lincoln nebraska was not named that while in lincoln's lifetime thank you for do not write me and all of the people who are writing me about the incredible hovercrafts of kansas like dorothy's house just just address it to ken i just landed on my witch in a hovercraft so omaha was uh became like a major hub for Traffic headed west. It was on the Missouri River. It was right across from uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa. And part of the Lewis and Clark experience. And it was the, it became the kind of storehouse, the supply depot for the westward migration. And also, you know, then a collecting point for. Sure, you need workers to run the supply depot. That and also all the all the meat packing, all mm-hmm. of the all of the um, you got to process the wheat you're growing. That's and the right, the wheat and so forth. Ranching, and so Omaha was a a town that was even maybe um, less than manufacturing. It was primarily like a, a a warehouse town. It was a place that you could resupply and. The downtown of Omaha, although the headquarters of Union Pacific, was originally kind of built as a transfer hub. Get stuff off of one train and onto another. Right. So when Con Agra as a company began, it was originally called the Nebraska Consolidated Mills Company. Does the con still stand for consolidated? It does. Ooh. It's consolidated agriculture. That's what you want to do with agriculture. Conagra. Consolidated. So they weren't really making anything. They were just, uh, they were bringing in shipments of grain and consolidating them there in silos. And then, you know, they were a distributor. Uh, Ready Whip wasn't even a gleam in their eye. They hadn't even, there wasn't even such a, there wasn't even such a dream. Can you imagine? There probably were future, you know, philosophers on street corners who were like, one day this creamed milk will come in a metal tube propelled by the gas of laughter. <laughs> At the time... And everyone was like, stone him! Teenagers that couldn't get beer would go into convenience stores and they had to get high off of just like eating as many Ritz crackers as they The could. whipped cream section just had a, a... There was a cracker barrel and then the whipped cream section was just a, a series of rocks and you would hit huh. yourself on the head with a rock and hope it approximated the lightheadedness of, of doing whippets. When, Con, uh, when ConAgra first conned uh, into its into a, a, a business in 1919, um, downtown Omaha was already a a city of warehouses and like a port, except it's in the middle. Of, it's Omaha somewhere in Middle America, and as it, Counting Crows taught us. And it really it really was a port because it was it was where the railroad and the river met. Those warehouses were built over the course of, well, from the time the railroad 
began, the Union Pacific started in, in, uh, in Omaha until World War I. The warehouse district in Omaha was a, it's interesting to think about, about warehousing as an industry kind of of itself. Right. I, I put things in a building and then I know how to get them out of the building. Right. We're going if without to, my buildings. You can't do it. I, I'm going to take a dime <laughs> on every dollar. We're going to build a town that is about filling up and emptying out. And I assume there's probably, maybe not yet, but at the time there is some, there's some science and efficiencies to that, right? You got to know how much space you need for certain kinds of things, wh- how long they're going to be there, like valet parking a car, like last in, first out. This was the dawn of refrigeration. Mm. It was... Um, oh, yeah, ConAgra owns Birdseye, right? Right. There's your early days of refrigeration. If you think about the original construction of the railroads, there wasn't anybody out there, right? I mean... The railroads um, to the West, there was a kind of manifest destiny justification for building them, but they weren't, there wasn't yet. You weren't bringing things to anyone. No, and you weren't, uh, you weren't bringing things really back from anywhere either. Um, and constructing the railroads was, was extremely expensive. And in, in fact, when the, when the Union Pacific was first proposed, uh, it not very many investors rushed in to, to get rich on it because it wasn't a, there wasn't a clear business case for, for building it. Just like today with Elon Musk. Well, and there was a lot of malfeasance around building it. Just uh, like today with Elon Musk. There was the, the Union Pacific set up a fake bank and, uh, and like absolutely robbed the U S government. Yeah. Like basically, public dollars. Basically every dollar they spent, on building the railroad, another dollar disappeared in into their pockets because you know the government had a, a vested interest in it. That's but how it, you do it. But by the 1880s, it was there was there was enough kind of uh, there were goods and services moving around. Maybe not services moving, but there were a lot of goods. It was really surplus in California that first kind of introduced the idea of like, wait a minute, we're growing way more food out here than we can consume. What if we packed it up? What if we packed that fresh fruit up in refrigerated cars and sent it back east? Um, and Omaha was the was the hub of it. And so you think about Detroit or Pittsburgh and those towns kind of falling on hard times, the factories shutting down. Those factories were built to to make things. Omaha was built to move things. Uh and over the course of about 40 years at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, downtown Omaha built um, in, a, in a very concentrated area, uh, just like a seven by three block area. Uh, there were 24 different giant warehouse buildings built to accommodate the, you know, the tremendous sort of in and out of American commerce that kind of, that was like literally a kind of heart, right? Stuff coming in one valve, stuff going out another. Barrels full of salted fish coming out the other. And this... What are these, when you say warehouses, you know, I'm picturing kind of modern day corrugated metal places where, um, where Batman swoops mm-hmm. down out of the darkness at you. But I assume like most public buildings back then, these were beautiful edifices. This was 19th century Batman. Uh, which uh, his, his I love nineteenth century Batman. His lair was made out of red brick. The buildings were all kind of built during an era where Renaissance revival architecture was the rage, even for warehouses. For warehouses, so a lot of them had turrets, you know, what? and they were gorgeous buildings, uh, mostly built out of red brick. They were seven stories tall in most cases, between six and eight stories tall. Wow. And they were built. They're probably multiple stories, right? They're not just six or seven. They're not just big vaulted spaces. They're not big vaulted spaces with piled to the roof with with crates. They're no. This was they. they, You know, they had tall ceilings, and each floor. I mean, the floors were often a building was built by a single company, but then leased out Mm -hmm. in um, in you know, you could have an office and kind of of any size or shape as you started a company and. 
you know, could lease space to accommodate all your barrels of salted fish until you, until you expanded into canned ravioli and then you leased the building next door. Um, and the, the, they were all compactly located because of their proximity to the Union Pacific Yards and to the river. So they were right down kind of at the, at, at the water's edge. And the buildings were tall enough and, and, and like substantial enough that the experience of being down in this district felt like you were, it was described in multiple accounts as just feeling like you were in a canyon land because the, the buildings were close enough to, the streets weren't super wide boulevards, you know, you were, you'd be down in there and feel like the, the buildings blotted out the sky. The funny thing is today, you know, Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue in Manhattan is described this way. But back then, there probably were very few blocks of Manhattan that actually had rows of buildings that tall canyoning around you. Omaha was probably the closest equivalent. If you're Spider-Man in 1910... You can go you down be, seven blocks over three. You want to be in Omaha if you're a 19th century Spider-Man. <laughs> if you imagine how impressive that would have been in 1890 or 1905. I mean, in any great city of the world, much less Out in the middle Omaha. of the plains, yeah. right? And the, so the neighborhood became known as Jobbers Canyon because the people that were doing that kind of work were known as jobbers. Right, they were. Like if you worked in a warehouse, you were a jobber. Yeah, they were jacks of all trades. They were, um, they were get things done types. Make it, you know, thinking makes and making things. Um, commercing. They were doing a lot of commercing. Are these are mostly manual labor? I assume most of these workers, or is a jobber also the clerk filling out the lading bills? I mean, I, I guess for if you're a warehouse company, you need. You need both. That's an information economy, kind of. But I think you mostly just need big, burly Swedish and Eastern European guys, right? Yeah, a jobber is somebody that does, it's like a temp, you know, like a working class yeah, temp, okay. right? You've got guys standing around. And it's like, I need I need you to tote that barge. So here would be I like, need you to lift that bale. It would be like a stevedore. Yeah, yeah, except they're doing all kinds of, all kinds of work, right? Stevedores are... Dock workers. Yes. These would be, yeah, warehousemen. Everything required to run a warehouse. And there's no forklifts back then. The forklift, again, is a burly Bavarian man. So in 1919, when Nebraska Consolidated Mills starts, Jobbers Canyon is a uh, hustle bustle center of commerce in, in uh, the American Middle West. And they start initially as a as a, a grain distributor, they start the the company started in Grand Isle, Nebraska, but they moved to Omaha in 1922, and they distributed grain all the way through um, the Depression. And in 1940, in order to develop a market, like expand the market for their their own grain, they started for the first time making flour, their own flour. So a mill there. Yeah. They were now processing, milling their own, um, product from their raw materials. And they continued to, um, they made their own flour throughout the war. And in 1951, again, looking for a market for their, for their homemade flour or their, their, um, self-made flour, they, Invented or developed or opened the business Duncan Hines. Duncan Hines, which made pre-made cake mixes and um, cupcake mix and so forth that you could buy on supermarket shelves. Pretty innovative that's, concept. That's the first baking mix, dry baking mix? Yeah, we're, gonna, we're going to, uh, let's see, Duncan Hines versus Betty Crocker. Who came first? Duncan Hines. We should probably at some point do Duncan Hines, the man, as an omnibus entry because he's an interesting figure in American food. And unlike Betty Crocker, he's real. Yeah, the cake mix is, uh, is an invention of the 1930s. But by the 50s, you know, if you think about the Levittown GIs coming home to, uh, to the Pillsbury home-cooked cake mix thing, Duncan Hines was was uh, one of the big brands of that kind of movement. They were they were the uh, ad eggs, 
brand. Oh, I see. And, you know, their other other cake mixes didn't have to add eggs. So the eggs gave it that extra egginess that you want in a cake. Unless the other ones somehow had dried eggs already They had in the some box. kind of dried eggs, probably. Ew. But um, Nebraska Con- Consolidated Mills did not... Um, did not take advantage of their innovation in developing Duncan Hines, and they actually sold it to Procter and Gamble in 1956 to concentrate on being a jobber company. Um, they they spent their you know they they reinvested in poultry and livestock and fertilizer and pet food and catfish meal. You know they were. They didn't want to be a consumer products company. They were part of this culture of Jobbers Canyon and the the um, the raw materials game. Uh, but unfortunately, they were bad at it. And we've talked about the era of commodity speculation in the U.S. Yeah, we did the onions, uh, onion cornering the onion market show. And the problem for. Uh, Nebraska Consolidated Mills, who changed their name to ConAgra in 1971, um, was that commodity speculation almost put them out of business. If you are if you are in a business of moving commodities, your profit margin gets gobbled up by speculators as prices wildly fluctuate. Uh, it more often does not benefit you as the supplier. The, if people in Chicago are driving prices down or wildly around, because you know you're in a you're in a an economy where every year you're left holding the bag if prices fall. So it's like opening a restaurant today. Don't yeah. do it. Right. Don't do margins it. are low. Whatever you do, Tight. don't become a don't become a commodity jobber. I don't want to be a jobber. What if I just left left my life behind, just left my family, left my game show, and just became a, a Midwestern warehouseman? Just out there wearing big baggy wool pants and a flat cap. The dream. The American dream. So in 1974, ConAgra was, um, was kind of bankrupting. There were a lot of, a, a lot of companies were starting to move in this direction of consolidating, uh, buying other food companies, becoming big conglomerates. And ConAgra hired a young CEO by the name of Charles Michael Harper. And Charles Michael Hop- Harper was part of, a, part of this new school of, of ag business CEOs. And he brought ConAgra back from the brink by primarily buying other food brands, getting out of the raw materials business and getting into processed foods. Having something to sell at the end. That's right. Um, he bought over a hundred different food brands and brought them under the umbrella of ConAgra. It's weird how early that starts. I mean, today it's every company's exit strategy as well. We'll get bought by this bigger company. We'll merge with our rival. Right. But at, at the time you're at the still, time you'd be like i just make i just make powdered milk biscuits yeah that's this is we're here in jobbers canyon just just moving uh powdered biscuits around and a guy comes in and says we'll give you 10 million dollars for for your banquet frozen foods turkey pies and I'd you take, go hmm, i'd take it sure I, i'm not wedded, i'm not married to the to the frozen turkeys john and banquet was i think maybe one of the first companies that uh conagra bought and so they're, they, they grew and grew I, in the nineties. They bought over the course of five or six years in the nineties, they bought a billion dollars worth of other food brands. Oh, this process continues into the nineties. This, is, this isn't some mid century thing. The company grows and grows. Um, but in the, in the 1980s, so Mike Harper's been in charge of the company now for 10 years and he's considered kind of a a darling of the you know Midwest agro business. He's some 80s corporator guy. He's maybe not agro business but agro business. Probably a little agro if he's like most 80s um, financial guys. He's, Is he still alive or can we speculate on on you know cocaine use and stuff? No, he died in 2016, so he's he's fair game. We can we sorry can, to his loving widow. Well, no, we're going to start besmirching him right now. Oh, good. 
in the in the mid eighties, by this point in time, all the decline in the foodstuffs business and the consolidations and the um the the era of processing foods uh but also the decline of American industry in general had produced in Omaha uh kind of a predictable situation, which was that there wasn't a ton of industry left. People, you know, mechanization and containerization meant that there weren't a lot of jobs for jobbers. Unemployment rises, white people flee to the suburbs. There's not the city's probably in a bad way. The the uh, Jobbers Canyon buildings start to see, you know, the the canyon starts to feel a little um little desolate. I'm looking for Rents a picture fall. of Jobbers Canyon. There are some great pictures of Jobbers Canyon, and I recommend anyone listening to the show that's curious. These are beautiful old buildings. Go look at them. Beautiful old buildings. They're buildings that you um, that you think of as uh, now, the, those buildings, you can't look at them without thinking, wow, what a great apartment that would be. <laughs> I was in downtown Cincinnati not long ago, and there's some buildings that look much like this, which I assume are left over from a warehousing era on the Ohio River. And it's and, and it's, now they're turning into gentrified apartments. And uh, we think of them as apartments because that's largely what they the the ones that survive. That's largely where what they become. Yeah. Um, because there's just not the same need for places you can. Turn a turn a uh, forklift around. I mean, you certainly wouldn't do it in an American dense urban core. You wouldn't be like, well, where do you put the warehouses? Right, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's right. If you think Those are zoned, uh, here zoned in elsewhere. Seattle, we just built one story warehouses throughout the Kent and Renton Valleys, some of the most fertile farmland in the world. Not too late. Just paved them over and one story, one story uh, warehouses as far as the eye can see. It's not too late to turn it into an apple orchard. Well, what happened in Omaha was uh, this was an this was the era of corporate merger, and Omaha was was falling on hard times, and and a big part of this also was that in America by the nineteen eighties the the railroad in general was in decline. Trucking, trucking had taken over, um, and you know there were there there was no more passenger rail. Rail routes had become consolidated. Interstate highways, yeah. So Omaha was kind of uh, hitting the skids and then suffered a blow in terms of its status as a corporate headquarters when a company that specialized in national or natural gas called Internorth uh, decided that they were going to change their names to Enron uh-huh. And leave Omaha for their new corporate uh, headquarters in Houston. Omaha dodged a bullet, and it scared the daylights out of Omaha because they saw yeah. their corporate—you know—all all the big what, business. What if, what if Mutual of Omaha leaves? Yeah, the, all the big business pulling out. And during this time, Mike Harper started to kind of threaten Omaha with the prospect of ConAgra, who had now grown to be one of the largest employers there leaving Omaha and moving to Chicago. And they were going to do it unless Omaha ponied up. It's like a sports team owner wanting the new stadium. Yep. Jeff Bezos trying to get laws changed and then he'll deliver magic Amazon jobs. Now, right about this time, Jobbers Canyon was declared a national historic district because it was widely understood to be the best example of a preserved um, 19th century warehouse district. Renaissance revival yeah. warehouse district. It was... How does that work? That's a, that's a federal agency? There's a federal list? So the National Historic... The National Register of Historic Buildings is a... Um, it's, it's very complicated because you want it to be a... Uh, you want it to be a federal list that protects buildings from demolition. Yeah, like the Interior Department keeps track of what you can blow up, and that's not how it is? No. the Being listed as a historic landmark um, does come with certain access to... Uh, 
like a lounge? Is there a free lounge? There's a lounge. There's a lounge where you get free coffee and you can wait. Um, there are standards of rehabilitation that come with it. There are, um, there are, there's access to government programs, but in fact, there's, there's very little to no enforcement of preservation, right? Like you, you think there's, there's a lot of sort of misconception that if your building is declared a historic landmark, you can't make additions to it or fix it up or tear it down. In most cases, that is the, the, those situations are actually like some local, um, homeowners association or some, you know, some like, Oh, you can't private organization. Yeah. You can't, uh, you can't change Thomas Jefferson's house because it has a plaque on it. But in fact, it's just a sort of a program that's mo- mostly, mostly for tourism. It's mostly a suggestion. Um, <laughs> there's not a ton of, of government money available. That always and, works when governments just kind of gently nudge corporations to do the right thing. There are tax credits. Mm. Um, the, the idea being if it's a, if it's a national, if it's a landmark, you can maybe make it a tourist attraction. But we saw here in Seattle, it, uh, not very long ago, in trying to save our beloved Showbox entertainment venue, it was declared a landmark by the Seattle City Council. Best concert venue in town. And that does not protect it at all, not one little bit from being torn down. And that's true of... Uh, what they're of, saying is, as long as this building exists, it's a historic place. Please enjoy it now. Yes, we are declaring it a historic location. Greedy developers might do something else with it, but as boy, as long as it's here, please don't sure, tear it. Sure down. is nice. Well, declaring the Jobbers Canyon a historic, uh, a historic area uh, did not. It it gave a lot of energy to preservationists, but it did not inhibit Mike Harper from threatening the city of Omaha with the departure of ConAgra if Omaha didn't acquiesce to his plan to tear down Jobbers Canyon to build a new corporate campus in the center of Omaha for ConAgra. And this was a this was an era as we've talked about many times of urban renewal in the United States where all kinds of terrible things happened to American cities in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, in the name of, uh, well, let's make sure it doesn't turn into a den of crime by which we mean minorities. You mean, yeah, the urban renewal and its companion word blight were used in, in the service of all manner of, therefore we got to build a highway through here. Therefore we got to tear down your, uh, historic neighborhood. And there are, there are plenty of worse examples in the U S, um, Fort Trumbull, Niagara Falls, basically all of Pole Town in Detroit. Um, some of these things happened even more recently than Jobbers Canyon. But Jobbers Canyon was especially egregious, partly because ConAgra could have built its uh, its corporate campus with and and have left Jobbers Canyon. It was just kind of yeah, I have to over assume, there. I have to assume downtown Omaha at the time is not chock a block with thriving businesses. No, it was all just rail yards and and cheap real estate probably. Um they could have they could have done both. And Mike Harper just didn't like Jobbers Canyon. What? It was just sort of ugly. What did the dude into Jobbers Canyon like maybe shoot his parents? He went on he he was, he, he was famously quoted at the time saying, "It's just a bunch of ugly red brick buildings." And he made Staying in Omaha contingent on a couple of things. One, an enormous tax break from the city of Omaha, which the city fathers terrified that they would have another Enron on their hands. <laughs> that meant something different at the time. Immediate, immediately like fell over themselves to pass a tax bill that, that gave ConAgra preferential treatment. And then in the spirit, and this was a kind of collective spirit in the town. Uh, uh, Mike Harper wasn't, uh, wasn't fighting all of the city boosters. Because they were like, yeah, bring something modern to Jobbers Canyon. Exactly. Like the mayor and the city council and all the, all you know, it was only the disagreeable, you know, NIMBY marchers that, that 
tried to get this neighborhood protected. And they were just the, the the they took it to court. They were their basically their case was steamrolled. And in 1989, all of Jobbers Canyon was demolished, uh, with the exception of one building. But the whole of the the whole of the neighborhood flattened and replaced with a of a, a fake lake with a park around it. And some low slung, yeah, fairly ugly red brick buildings. One story office building. Um, how uh, how ugly is it? Let me look. Well, I'll give you a sense. Uh, it depends on what you think is ugly, but what they ended up calling it was the heartland of America Park at the riverfront. Every one of these words capitalized, right? Heartland of America Park at the riverfront, and the. The idea being that, you know, it was a, it was going to revitalize the downtown by building a, a big outdoor public space, a pu- public space with a, with a, you know, it's a one mile loop around the park. There was another park connected to it called the Gene Lee mall, which was, um, named after the mayor. It had three fountains in the lake. One of them had a, uh, like the, the fountains were connected to a light show and a music show. So you know, they could, sure. at night, the fountains would shoot off and there'd be... Like our Seattle Center fountain. Like our Seattle Center fountain. That's the Omaha Bellagio. That's right. Well, maybe this is nice. I don't know. I mean, it's a public space now. It was... Is it well al- used? Although, you know, other attempts to um, to rehabilitate downtown Omaha kind of met with mixed success. In 2002, ConAgra who was still in the commodities business to the extent that they were still selling fresh meat, um, like ground beef and so forth. Yeah. They had a, an E. coli tragedy in their ground beef. And in 2002, E. coli, E. coli. Yeah. You said like E. coli. Um, they, they ended up selling off their fresh, fresh meat business in 2002 in 2006, they sold off their frozen meat business. I wouldn't buy any E. coli-laden frozen meat business. I'd be like, first you fix your E. coli problem, then maybe I'll buy your frozen meat business. Then, of course, they had a Slim Jim explosion at some point in there. <laughs> right. Uh, at a certain point, having redeveloped all of downtown Omaha, um, in 2015, Mike Harper decided that they were going to leave Omaha anyway and move their corporate headquarters to Chicago. Wow. And moved their corporate headquarters in Chicago to a building called the Merchandise Mart, which is effectively the world's biggest I know where that is. version of Jobbers Canyon. It's a stop on the L. Yeah, it's built in it's it's basically a Jobbers Canyon except mega-sized. <laughs> All of Jobbers Canyon together had 1.7 million square feet of warehouse space. Merchandise Mart has 4 million square feet of, of space. It was built as a, it was built in the same, in the same style, like everything in one place. Uh, but it also was showrooms of, you know, uh, of different companies where you could yeah. show off your wares. At one point, the Sultan of Brunei um, went to Merchandise Mart and furnished his entire palace just from things at Merchandise Mart because he said, there's only one place in the world that you could get everything, and it's here, beautiful Merchandise Yeah, it's where you go to look at wallpaper samples and furniture and stuff. It must be a little newer than the Jobbers Canyon stuff because it's not Renaissance Revival. It was built in 1930. Yeah, it's kind of deco. Yeah. So, so, but, but still built in at the, the, at the tail time, end of that style. Let's of build massive warehouse-like mer- buildings. Merchandise Mart, weirdly, is a big part of the Kennedy fortune. Really? Joe Kennedy bought Merchandise Mart in the, you know, kind of for pennies on the dollar during the Depression. And it ended up being a source of the Kennedy wealth all through their their political era. It's, you know, the money from merchandise Mart is what funded uh, the JFK campaign. JFK's crooked uh, win in yeah, 1960. And, it, <laughs> and, and, and its connection to Daly's Chicago and, and, uh, 
like they were, I always wondered why the, how the Kennedys were mobbed up with the Chicago Democratic Party, but that's why. It, it was Merchandise it was, Mart. It was Merchandise Mart. They owned a bunch of furniture showrooms. So in the end, all of that work um, on the part of Omaha to, to, to keep ConAgra- those jobs. Ended up, uh, ended up being for naught. The ConAgra campus now, still partly owned by ConAgra, uh, but, you know, a, but a much downscaled set of employees. They didn't keep the jobs, in other words. Yeah. Part of the park is fenced off. They're trying to, they're trying to fix it up and make it, so you know. Even the park now is a little dated. And yeah, well, the, and, and by all accounts, like the park, the park very quickly slid into a state of kind of graffiti, unsafe feeling. Urban blight? Urban blight. If you, if you, you replace the blight with the blight. But what's amazing is that in downtown Omaha, there was then a redevelopment of the remaining warehouse buildings from that era called the old market redevelopment, which has become. What do they do with it? Is it residential or is it a tourist attraction? Residential restaurants. You know, it's a vibrant, like old middle of downtown community that's a major tourist destination for all of the midwest and they could have had blocks of it people love it down there um and they could have you know they could it it's hard to know you definitely would have had a period of a couple of decades of of the jobbers canyon being just kind of abandoned before the pendulum turned on american cities but if you think about like what it represented in in terms of like the the wealth intrinsic to that kind of built environment yeah and the wealth that goes along with the history of a of a, and a sense of place and you look at uh from in in the moment it makes sense oh let's tear down this old garbage and build a build what looks like a um sanatorium in its place but now we're living in a place where the sanatorium itself is dated and a weird relic unusable and you think oh wow we really uh like think of think of what a jobbers canyon omaha would be we could have had a canyon here and we could have had this dumb hospital i mean it didn't have to get torn down if you're a city and some company comes to you basically with a little extortion gun in their pocket Heed the warning of Jobbers Canyon. They're just like the blackmailer that's going to keep hitting you up every nine months. It still happens all the time. Don't do what they say. Historic buildings torn down and replaced with parking lots. You've got a city to run. Don't let Bezos tell you. Well, not Bezos. Don't let whoever. Don't let let Elon Musk. Don't let Elon Musk. Tear down your beautiful, beautiful Renaissance Revival warehouses. Please, I'm begging you. And that concludes Jobbers Canyon, entry 673.LK1218, certificate number 48481, in the omnibus. As we leave you today, a quick reminder that you could find Omnibus at Omnibus Project on social media. I'm at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick, but he really shouldn't be there. Should be making more healthful, uh, mm-hmm. healthful home cooked meals, mm-hmm. and not hitting refresh on something while he shovels Trader Joe's tikka masala into his into his mouth. That's right. Getting most of it in his beard. That's right. You could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail You should certainly uh, look for others who enjoy the show, enjoying the discussion by finding the future links online. Uh, you could email. You could send us physical items if you have uh, relics of Omaha as it was. Send them to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. That's our little warehouse district mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. And we're the jobbers. And most importantly, I want you to get up. I want you to get up and go to the window, open the window, and lean out and say, <laughs> "I'm going to give to the Omnibus Patreon. I've been getting this for free, and I'm not going to mooch anymore." You can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project and enjoy all the amazing uh, perks and contents that come with it. There's a free lounge. There's a lounge with um, 
with coffee until uh, until 11 a.m. I should say that it was not Mike Harper who moved. Yeah, because you said he had died around then. Was, yeah, it was, was on his deathbed. Was he like leave Omaha? No, he 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 built that whole campus in Omaha and then retired. It was. The, who subsequent uh, caretake, subsequent caretaker executives, caretaker executives, who felt no obligation to adhere to the implicit promise that Conagra would stay there forever, having been given all this corporate grift. That's why you get a lawyer. It doesn't matter if the guy you're shaking your hands with is nice. He's gonna, he's gonna be he's gonna be in Cabo in in uh, two and a half years. He's yeah, gonna, pretty, he's gonna take some kind of a a package and leave. You're, then you're dealing with. Is even more shark-like successors. Pretty, pretty dumb that the uh, that the city council of Omaha, Nebraska, didn't have it written into the contract that you have to stay. I mean, it's the Boeing, it's the Boeing problem too. We have it here. It's a free speech violation, man. Corporations yeah. need to be able to do whatever they want at yeah. all times. They it's in the Constitution. That's right. Because, because God bless America. God bless America. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, sitting here on a on a pile of frozen food containers. We have no idea how long our civilization survived, but it can't possibly survive that long with how cheap this tikka masala is. We have no... uh, That can't can't even be real chicken. (laughs) No, no, it is. That's some kind of... Delicious chicken. That's some weird eight-legged, eight-breasted chicken that that Trader Joe's knows how to breed. No, this was a chicken named Sally, and she lived a full and rewarding life. Yeah, Costco should start putting the names on the rotisserie chickens. They're all named Sally. Oh, well, that's, that's easy to remember. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been all our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.